0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. I am your editor, producer, host, and all-around person who does... Thank you for listening. As always, the show is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. I just have to say, the Highland Cow Slippers continue to keep my feet warm as I record. Oh man. Woo baby. And hopefully in October, I'll be throwing a pair out into... Uh, some panel group at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Hopefully that's going on in October. I hope everyone's doing well. I hope everyone's staying safe. I hope everyone's staying clean. And when you're out and about, staying sterile. I don't know. Hey, just keep your brain going. Listen to some Oz. <coughs> I, I wonder what happens if if uh, you sync uh, this podcast up with uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, or who? Maybe if you uh, play the podcast while you watch Live at Pompeii. I don't know. Anyway, so <laughs> um, I, I don't mean to laugh at my own jokes, but there's no one else here, too. So yeah, uh, hope you checked out and enjoyed David Heath talking about Wizard of Oz and pop culture. And coming up soon, we're going to have Ken Haidt talking about the Wizard of Oz. I should have done a special where I put them together, but I didn't think about that. Oh, man. I fell down some stairs the other day. I hurt my ankle and my wrist. It's I'm, I'm finally getting this all out at the last minute, but yeah. So, hey, I hope you enjoy this. I hope you enjoy this week. This is the final week of Oz. This is the fifth story of... Dorothy Gale? Yeah, Dorothy Gale. Okay, so... But there's a ton more Oz books out there. There is seriously an insane amount of Oz books. They kept writing them. Not just... Uh, like um, Kind of like the Oz... Kind of like the Oz Society approves fan fiction kind of stuff. It's a ton of stuff out there. I, I, I recommend checking out the artwork at least. It's, it's very cool, interesting stuff. And yeah... Wizard of Oz, it's fun. its I enjoy it. hope, oh, Hopefully you're enjoying it and you've made it through the five books. I can't remember what next month is, but it's going to be fun. And also, don't forget to check out People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos coming out on Tuesday of this week. And we're going to be talking about a certain region of France that Clark Ashton Smith wrote about. And what else can we think? Yeah, no, remember to subscribe, listen, listen, uh, tell your friends about it and that's the best way you can help the show is rate and review on iTunes, Stitcher and anywhere else that podcasts are found because that's what's helpful. Here we go.
1: Chapter 16 How Dorothy visited Utensia. There must have been from 6 to 8 dozen spoons in the brigade and they marched away in the shape of a hollow square with Dorothy, Belina and Toto in the center of the square. Before they had gone very far, Toto knocked over one of the spoons by wagging his tail, and then the captain of the spoons told the little dog to be more careful, or he would be punished. So Toto was careful, and the spoon brigade moved along with astonishing swiftness, while Dorothy really had to walk fast to keep up with it. By and by they left the woods and entered a big clearing, in which was the kingdom of Utensia. Standing all around the clearing were a good many cook stoves, ranges, and grills of all sizes and shapes, and beside these there were several kitchen cabinets and cupboards, and a few kitchen tables. These things were crowded with utensils of all sorts—frying pans, saucepans, kettles, forks, knives, basting and soup spoons, nutmeg graters, sifters— colanders, meat saws, flat-irons, rolling-pins, and many other things of a like nature. When the spoon brigade appeared with the prisoners, a wild shout arose, and many of the utensils hopped off their stoves or their benches and ran crowding around Dorothy and the hen and the dog. "'Stand back!' cried the captain sternly, and he led his captives through the curious throng until they came before a big range that stood in the center of the clearing. Beside this range was a butcher block upon which lay a great cleaver with a keen edge. It rested upon the flat of its back, its legs were crossed, and it was smoking a long pipe. Wake up, your majesty, said the captain. Here are prisoners. Hearing this, King Cleaver sat up and looked at Dorothy sharply, grizzle and fat. He cried. Where did this girl come from? I found her in the forest and brought her here as a prisoner. Why did you do that? inquired the king, puffing his pipe lazily. To create some excitement, the captain answered. It is so quiet here that we are all getting rusty for want of amusement. For my part, I prefer to see stirring times. Naturally, returned the cleaver with a nod. I have always said, Captain, without a bit of irony, that you are a sterling officer and a solid citizen, bold and polished to a degree. But what do you expect me to do with these prisoners? That is for you to decide, declared the captain. You are the king. To be sure, to be sure, murmured the cleaver musingly. As you say, we have had dull times since the steel and grindstone eloped and left us. Command my counsellors and the royal courtiers to attend me, as well as the high priest and the judge. We'll then decide what can be done. The captain saluted and retired, and Dorothy sat down on an overturned kettle and asked, Have you anything to eat in your kingdom? Here, get up, get off of me called a faint voice, at which His Majesty the Cleaver said, "'Excuse me, but you're sitting on my friend, the tin quart kettle?' Dorothy at once arose, and the kettle turned right side up and looked at her reproachfully. "'I'm a friend of the king, so no one dares sit on me,' said he. "'I'd prefer a chair anyway,' she replied. "'Sit on that hearth,' commanded the king." So Dorothy sat on the hearth-shelf of the big range, and the subjects of Utensia began to gather around in a large and inquisitive throng. Toto lay at Dorothy's feet, and Bellina flew upon the range, which had no fire in it, and perched there as comfortably as she could. When all the counsellors and courtiers had assembled, and these seemed to include most of the inhabitants of the kingdom, the king rapped on the block for order and said, "'Friends and fellow utensils, our worthy commander of the Spoon Brigade, Captain Dip, "'has captured the three prisoners you see before you and brought them here for—for I don't know what for. "'So I ask your advice how to act in this matter, and what fate should I mete out to these captives. "'Judge Sifter, stand on my right. It is your business to sift this affair to the bottom.' High Priest Colander, stand on my left, and see that no one testifies falsely in this matter. As these two officials took their places, Dorothy asked, Why is the Colander the High Priest? He's the holiest thing we have in the kingdom, replied King Cleaver. Except me, said a sieve. I'm the whole thing when it comes to holes. What we need, remarked the king rebukingly is a wireless sieve. I must speak to Macaroni about it. These old-fashioned sieves talk too much. Now, it is the duty of the king's counselors to counsel the king at all times of emergencies, so I beg you to speak out and advise me what to do with these prisoners. I demand that they be killed several times until they are dead, shouted a pepper-box, hopping around very excitedly. Compose yourself, Mr. Paprika, advised the king. Your remarks are piquant and highly seasoned, but you need a scattering of common sense. It is only necessary to kill a person once to make him dead, but I do not see that it is necessary to kill this little girl at all. I don't either, said Dorothy. Pardon me, but you are not expected to advise me in this matter, replied King Cleaver. Why not? asked Dorothy. "'You might be prejudiced in your own favor, and so mislead me,' he said. "'Now then, good subjects, who speaks next?' "'I'd like to smooth this thing over in some way,' said A Flatiron earnestly. "'We are supposed to be useful to mankind, you know.' "'But this girl isn't mankind. She's womankind,' yelled a corkscrew. "'What do you know about it?' inquired the king." I'm a lawyer, said the corkscrew proudly. I'm accustomed to appear at the bar. But you're crooked, retorted the king, and that debars you. You may be a corking good lawyer, Mr. Pop, but I must ask you to withdraw your remarks. Very well, said the corkscrew sadly. I see I haven't any pull at this court. Permit me, continued the flatiron, To press my suit, your majesty, I do not wish to gloss over any fault the prisoner may have committed, if such a fault exists, but we owe her some consideration, and that's flat. I'd like to hear from Prince Carver," said the king. At this a stately carving knife stepped forward and bowed. The captain was wrong to bring this girl here, and she was wrong to come, he said, "'But now that the foolish deed is done, let us all prove our mettle and have a slashing good time.' "'That's it, that's it!' screamed a fat chopping knife. "'We'll make mincemeat of the girl and hash of the chicken and sausage of the dog.' There was a shout of approval at this, and the king had to rap again for order. "'Gentlemen, gentlemen,' he said. "'Your remarks are somewhat cutting and rather disjointed.' as might be expected from such acute intellects. But you give me no reasons for your demands. See here, Cleaver, you make me tired,' said a saucepan, strutting before the king very impudently. "'You're about the worst king that ever reigned in Utensia, and that's saying a good deal. Why don't you run things yourself, instead of asking everybody's advice like the big clumsy idiot you are?' The king sighed. ''I wish there wasn't a saucepan in my kingdom,'' he said. ''You fellows are always stewing over something, and every once in a while you slop over and make a mess of it. Go hang yourself, sir, by the handle, and don't let me hear from you again.'' Dorothy was much shocked by the dreadful language the utensils employed, and she thought that they must have had very little proper training. So she said, addressing the king, who seemed very unfit to rule his turbulent subjects, I wish you'd decide my fate right away. I can't stay here all day trying to find out what you're going to do with me. This thing is becoming a regular broil, and it's time I took part in it, observed a big gridiron, iron coming forward. What I'd like to know... "'said a can-opener in a shrill voice, "'is why the little girl came to our forest anyhow, "'and why she intruded upon Captain Dip, "'who ought to be called Dippy, "'and who she is, and where she came from, "'and where she is going, "'and why, and wherefore, and therefore, and when.' "'I'm sorry to see, Sir Jabber,' "'remarked the King to the can-opener, "'that you have such a prying disposition. "'As a matter of fact,' "'All the things you mention are none of your business.' Having said this, the king relighted his pipe which had gone out. "'Tell me, please, what is our business?' inquired a potato-masher, winking at Dorothy somewhat impertinently. "'I'm fond of little girls myself, "'and it seems to me she has as much right to wander in the forest as we have.' "'Who accuses the little girl anyway?' inquired a rolling pin. "'What has she done?' i don't know said the king what has she done captain dip that's the trouble your majesty she hasn't done anything replied the captain what do you want me to do asked dorothy the question seemed to puzzle them all finally a chafing dish exclaimed irritably if no one can throw any light on this subject you must excuse me if i go out at this a big kitchen fork pricked up its ears and said in a tiny voice, Let's hear from Judge Sifter. That's proper, returned the king. So Judge Sifter turned around slowly several times and then said, We have nothing against the girl except the stove-hearth upon which she sits. Therefore I order her instantly discharged. Discharged? cried Dorothy. "Why?" I never was discharged in my life, and I don't intend to be. If it's all the same to you, I'll resign." It's all the same, declared the king. You are free, you and your companions, and may go wherever you like. Thank you, said the little girl, but haven't you anything to eat in your kingdom? I'm hungry. Go into the woods and pick blackberries, advised the king, lying down upon his back again and preparing to go to sleep. "'There isn't a morsel to eat in all utensia that I know of.' So Dorothy jumped up and said, "'Come on, Toto and Bellina. "'If we can't find the camp, we may find some blackberries.' The utensils drew back and allowed them to pass without protest, although Captain Dip marched the spoon brigade in close order after them until they had reached the edge of the clearing. There the spoons halted, but Dorothy and her companions entered the forest again, and began searching diligently for a way back to the camp that they might rejoin their party. End of chapter 16.
0: Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying Emerald City of Oz. And just a reminder, it really helps if you... You don't have to donate money, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is go to wherever you find this show and just review it. Give it a couple of stars, give it well, more than a couple stars. I mean, at least three or four. And, you know, always say something, not always, geez, I don't want to tell you what to do, but say something nice. I don't know. There's people who don't like the first three minutes and are like really mean about it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's not. Anyway, just, just, it helps the show and it gets me money for advertising. So I don't have to do this in the middle of the show. All right. Thank you very much. And hope you enjoy the next 15 to 20 minutes left of the show. Alright, thank you. Have a good one.
1: Chapter 17 How They Came to Bunbury Wandering through the woods without knowing where you are going or what adventure you are about to meet next is not as pleasant as one may think. The woods are always beautiful and impressive, and if you are not worried or hungry, you may enjoy them immensely. But Dorothy was worried and hungry that morning, so she paid little attention to the beauties of the forest, and hurried along as fast as she could go. She tried to keep in one direction and not circle around, but she was not at all sure that the direction she had chosen would lead her to the camp. By and by, to her great joy, she came upon a path. It ran to the right and to the left, being lost in the trees in both directions and just before her upon a big oak were fastened two signs with arms pointing both ways. One sign read, Take the other road to Bunbury, and the second sign read, Take the other road to Bunnybury. Well, exclaimed Bellina, eyeing the signs, this looks as if we were getting back to civilization again. I'm not sure about the civilization, dear, replied the little girl, but it looks as if we might get somewhere, and that's a big relief, anyhow. Which path shall we take? inquired the yellow hen. Dorothy stared at the signs thoughtfully. Bunberry sounds like something to eat, she said. Let's go there. It's all the same to me, replied Billina. She had picked up enough bugs and insects from the moss as she went along to satisfy her own hunger. But the hen knew Dorothy could not eat bugs, nor could Toto. The path to Bunbury seemed little-traveled, but it was distinct enough and ran through the trees in a zigzag course until it finally led them to an open space filled with the queerest houses Dorothy had ever seen. They were all made of crackers laid out in tiny squares and were of many pretty and ornamental shapes, having balconies and porches with posts of breadsticks and roofs shingled with wafer crackers. There were walks of bread crusts leading from house to house and forming streets, and the place seemed to have many inhabitants. When Dorothy, followed by Belina and Toto, entered the place, they found people walking the streets or assembled in groups talking together or sitting upon the porches and balconies. And what funny people they were! Men and women and children were all made of buns and bread. Some were thin and others fat, some were white, some light brown and some very dark of complexion. A few of the buns, which seemed to form the more important class of the people, were neatly frosted. Some had raisins for eyes and currant buttons on their clothes, others had eyes of cloves and legs of stick cinnamon and many wore hats and bonnets frosted pink and green. There was something of a commotion in Bunbury when the strangers suddenly appeared among them. Women caught up their children and hurried into their houses, shutting the cracker doors carefully behind them. Some men ran so hastily that they tumbled over one another, while others, more brave, assembled in a group and faced the intruders defiantly. Dorothy at once realized that she must act with caution in order not to frighten these shy people who were evidently unused to the presence of strangers. There was a delightful, fragrant odor of fresh bread in the town, and this made the little girl more hungry than ever. She told Toto and Bellina to stay back while she slowly advanced toward the group that stood silently awaiting her. "'You must excuse me for coming unexpected,' she said softly but i really didn't know i was coming here until i arrived i was lost in the woods you know and i'm as hungry as anything hungry they murmured in horrified chorus yes i haven't had anything to eat since last night's supper she exclaimed are there any edibles in bunberry they looked at one another undecidedly Then one portly bun man who seemed a person of consequence, stepped forward and said, "'Little girl, to be frank with you, we are all edibles. Everything in Bunbury is edible to ravenous human creatures like you, but it is to escape being eaten and destroyed that we have secluded ourselves in this out-of-the-way place, and there is neither right nor justice in your coming here to feed upon us.' Dorothy looked at him longingly. "'You're bread, aren't you?' she asked. "'Yes, bread and butter. The butter is inside me, so it won't melt and run. I do the running myself.' At this joke all the others burst into a chorus of laughter, and Dorothy thought they couldn't be much afraid if they could laugh like that. "'Couldn't I eat something beside people?' she asked. "'Couldn't I eat just one house?' "'or a sidewalk or something. "'I wouldn't mind much what it was, you know.' "'This is not a public bakery, child,' replied the man sternly. "'It's private property. "'I know, Mr.—Mr.—' "'My name is C. Bunn, Esquire,' said the man. "'C stands for cinnamon, and this place is called after my family, "'which is the most aristocratic in the town.' "'Oh, I don't know about that.' "'objected another of the queer people. "'The Grams and the Browns and Whites are all excellent families, "'and there is none better of their kind. "'I'm a Boston Brown myself.' "'I admit you are all desirable citizens,' said Mr. Bunn rather stiffly. "'But the fact remains that our town is called Bunbury.' "'Excuse me,' interrupted Dorothy, "'but I'm getting hungrier every minute. "'Now if you're polite and kind, as I'm sure you ought to be—' "'You let me eat something. "'There's so much to eat here that you would never miss it.' "'Then a big puffed-up man, of a delicious brown color, "'stepped forward and said, "'I think it would be a shame to send this child away hungry, "'especially as she agrees to eat whatever we can spare "'and not touch our people.' "'So do I, Pop,' replied a roll who stood near. "'What then do you suggest, Mr. Over?' inquired Mr. Bun. Why, I'll let her eat my back fence if she wants to. It's made of waffles and they're very crisp and nice. She may also eat my wheelbarrow. Added a pleasant-looking muffin. It's made of Nabiscos with a Zuzu wheel. Very good, very good. remarked Mister. Bun. That is certainly very kind of you. Go with Popover and Mister. Muffin, little girl, and they will feed you. Thank you very much. Said Dorothy gratefully. May I bring my dog Toto and the Yellow Hen? They're hungry, too. Will you make them behave?" asked the Muffin. Of course, promised Dorothy. Then come along, said Popover. So Dorothy and Bellina and Toto walked up the street, and the people seemed no longer to be at all afraid of them. Mr. Muffin's house came first, and, as his wheelbarrow stood in the front yard, the little girl ate that first. It didn't seem very fresh, but she was so hungry that she was not particular. Toto ate some, too, while Belina picked up the crumbs. While the strangers were engaged in eating, many of the people came and stood in the street curiously watching them. Dorothy noticed six roguish-looking brown children standing all in a row, and she asked, ''Who are you, little ones?'' ''We're the Graham Jims," replied one, ''and we're all twins.'' "'I wonder if your mother could spare one or two of you?' asked Bellina, who decided that they were fresh-baked. But at this dangerous question the six little gems ran away as fast as they could go. "'You mustn't say such things, Bellina,' said Dorothy reprovingly. "'Now let's go into Pop-Over's backyard and get the waffles.' "'I sort of hate to let that fence go,' remarked Mr. Over, nervously, as they walked toward his house.' The neighbors back of us are soda biscuits, and I don't care to mix with them. But I'm hungry yet, declared the girl. That wheelbarrow wasn't very big. I've got a shortcake piano, but none of my family can play on it, he said reflectively. Suppose you eat that. All right, said Dorothy. I don't mind. Anything to be accommodating. So Mr. Over led her into the house, where she ate the piano, which was of an excellent flavor. ''Is there anything to drink here?'' she asked. ''Yes, I have a milk pump and a water pump. Which will you have?'' he asked. ''I guess I'll try them both,'' said Dorothy. So Mr. Over called to his wife, who brought into the yard a pail made of some kind of baked dough, and Dorothy pumped the pail full of cool sweet milk and drank it eagerly. The wife of Popover was several shades darker than her husband. ''Aren't you overdone?'' the little girl asked her. "'No, indeed,' answered the woman. "'I'm neither overdone nor done over. I'm just Mrs. Over, and I'm the president of the Bunbury Breakfast Band.' Dorothy thanked them for their hospitality, and went away. At the gate Mr. Cinnamon Bun met her, and said he would show her around the town. "'We have some very interesting inhabitants,' he remarked, walking stiffly beside her on his stick cinnamon legs. "'And all of us who are in good health are well-bred.' If you are no longer hungry, we will call upon a few of the most important citizens." Toto and Belina followed behind them, behaving very well, and a little way down the street they came to a handsome residence where Aunt Sally Lunn lived. The little old lady was glad to meet the little girl, and gave her a slice of white bread and butter, which had been used as a doormat. It was almost fresh, and tasted better than anything Dorothy had eaten in the town. "'Where do you get the butter?' she inquired. "'We dig it out of the ground, which, as you may have observed, is all flour and meal,' replied Mr. Bun. "'There is a butter mine just at the opposite side of the village. The trees which you see here are all doleanders and doderas, and in the season we get quite a crop of doughnuts off them.' I should think the flour would blow around and get into your eyes," said Dorothy. No," said he. We are bothered with cracker dust sometimes, but never with flour. Then he took her to see Johnny Cake, a cheerful old gentleman who lived nearby. I suppose you've heard of me," said old Johnny, with an air of pride. I'm a great favorite all over the world. Aren't you rather yellow?" asked Dorothy, looking at him critically. "'Maybe, child, but don't think I'm bilious, "'for I was never in better health in my life,' replied the old gentleman. "'If anything ailed me, I'd willingly acknowledge the corn.' "'Johnny's a trifle stale,' said Mr. Bun as they went away. "'But he's a good mixer and never gets cross-grained. "'I will now take you to call upon some of my own relatives.' "'They visited the sugar buns, the currant buns, the Spanish buns—' the latter having a decidedly foreign appearance. Then they saw the French Rolls, who were very polite to them and made a brief call upon the Parker H. Rolls, who seemed a bit proud and overbearing. "'But they're not as stuck up as the frosted jumbles,' declared Mr. Bunn, "'who are people I really can't abide. I don't like to be suspicious or talk scandal, but sometimes I think the jumbles have too much baking powder in them.' Just then a dreadful scream was heard, and Dorothy turned hastily around to find a scene of great excitement a little way down the street. The people were crowding around Toto and throwing at him everything they could find at hand. They pelted the little dog with hardtack, crackers, and even articles of furniture which were hard-baked and heavy enough for missiles. Toto howled a little as the assortment of baked stuff struck him. But he stood still, with head bowed and tail between his legs, until Dorothy ran up and inquired what the matter was. Matter! cried a rye loafer indignantly. Why, the horrid beast has eaten three of our dear crumpets and is now devouring a salt-rising biscuit. Oh, Toto, how could you? exclaimed Dorothy, much distressed. Toto's mouth was full of his salt-rising victim. So he only whined and wagged his tail. But Bellina, who had flown to the top of a cracker-house to be in a safe place, called out, "'Don't blame him, Dorothy. The crumpets dared him to do it.' "'Yes, and you pecked out the eyes of a raisin-bun, one of our best citizens,' shouted a bread-pudding, shaking its fist at the yellow hen. "'What's that? What's that?' wailed Mr. Cinnamon-bun, who had now joined them. "'Oh, what a misfortune! What a terrible misfortune! See here.' said Dorothy, determined to defend her pets. "'I think we've treated you all pretty well, seeing your eatables and regular food for us. I've been kind to you and eaten your old wheelbarrows and pianos and rubbish and not said a word, but Toto and Bellina can't be spected to go hungry when the town's full of good things they like to eat, cause they can't understand your stingy ways as I do.' "'You must leave here at once.' "'said Mr. Bun sternly. "'Suppose we won't go?' said Dorothy, who was now much provoked. "'Then,' said he, "'we will put you into the great ovens where we are made and bake you.' Dorothy gazed around and saw threatening looks upon the faces of all. She had not noticed any ovens in the town, but they might be there nevertheless, for some of the inhabitants seemed very fresh.' So she decided to go, and calling to Toto and Bellina to follow her, she marched up the street with as much dignity as possible, considering that she was followed by the hoots and cries of the buns and biscuits and other baked stuff. End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 How Ozma Looked into the Magic Picture Princess Ozma was a very busy little ruler, for she looked carefully after the comfort and welfare of her people and tried to make them happy. If any quarrels arose, she decided them justly. If anyone needed counsel or advice, she was ready and willing to listen to them. For a day or two after Dorothy and her companions had started on their trip, Ozma was occupied with the affairs of her kingdom, Then she began to think of some manner of occupation for Uncle Henry and Aunt Em that would be light and easy and yet give the old people something to do. She soon decided to make Uncle Henry the keeper of the jewels, for someone really was needed to count and look after the bins and barrels of emeralds, diamonds, rubies, and other precious stones that were in the royal storehouses. That would keep Uncle Henry busy enough. But it was harder to find something for Aunt Em to do. The palace was full of servants, so there was no detail of housework that Aunt Em could look after. While Ozma sat in her pretty room, engaged in thought, she happened to glance at her magic picture. This was one of the most important treasures in all the land of Oz. It was a large picture set in a beautiful gold frame and it hung in a prominent place upon a wall of Ozma's private room. Usually this picture seemed merely a country scene, but whenever Ozma looked at it and wished to know what any of her friends or acquaintances were doing, the magic of this wonderful picture was straightway disclosed, for the country scene would gradually fade away, and in its place would appear the likeness of the person or persons Ozma wished to see, surrounded by the actual scenes in which they were then placed. In this way the princess could view any part of the world she wished, and watch the actions of anyone in whom she was interested. Ozma had often seen Dorothy in her Kansas home by this means, and now having a little leisure she expressed the desire to see her little friend again. It was while the travelers were at Fuddlecumjig, and Ozma laughed merrily as she watched in the picture her friends trying to match the pieces of Grandmother Gannett. They seem happy and are doubtless having a good time, the girl ruler said to herself, and then she began to think of the many adventures she herself had encountered with Dorothy. The image of her friends now faded from the magic picture, and the old landscape slowly reappeared. "'Ozma was thinking of the time when, with Dorothy and her army, "'she marched to the Gnome King's underground cavern, "'beyond the land of Ev, "'and forced the old monarch to liberate his captives, "'who belonged to the royal family of Ev. "'That was the time when the Scarecrow nearly frightened the Gnome King into fits "'by throwing one of Bellina's eggs at him, "'and Dorothy had captured King Roquat's magic belt,' and brought it away with her to the land of Oz. The pretty princess smiled at the recollection of this adventure, and then she wondered what had become of the Gnome King since then. Merely because she was curious and had nothing better to do, Ozma glanced at the magic picture and wished to see in it the King of the Gnomes. Rokwat the Red went every day into his tunnel, to see how the work was getting along, and to hurry his workmen as much as possible. He was there now, and Ozma saw him plainly in the magic picture. She saw the underground tunnel, reaching far underneath the deadly desert which separated the land of Oz from the mountains beneath which the Gnome King had his extensive caverns. She saw that the tunnel was being made in the direction of the emerald city and knew at once it was being dug so that the army of gnomes could march through it and attack her own beautiful and peaceful country. "I suppose King Roquard is planning revenge against us," she said musingly, "and thinks he can surprise us and make us his captives and slaves. How sad it is that anyone can have such wicked thoughts." But I must not blame King Roquat too severely, for he is a gnome, and his nature is not so gentle as my own. Then she dismissed from her mind further thought of the tunnel for that time, and began to wonder if Aunt Em would not be happy as royal mender of the stockings of the ruler of Oz. Ozma wore few holes in her stockings, still they sometimes needed mending.' Aunt M ought to be able to do that very nicely. Next day, the princess watched the tunnel again in her magic picture, and every day afterwards she devoted a few minutes to inspecting the work. It was... Would-